Uh, good morning again. It's good to worship the Lord with you all in song and around the Lord's table. And if you will, turn in your Bibles. James chapter 1, James chapter 1. Now we've been in James for a few weeks now, and we've been looking at James and James's challenge to you, to his readers, to have a faith that works. In other words, he's challenging you to live out what you say you believe, because true faith is always demonstrated in practice. It's always demonstrated in how we act, what we say, what we do. And James has opened the book of James, opened his letter, chapter 1, verses 2 through 15, with a large section on trials, because he knows that one of the most trying things in your life are trials. One of the most, the hardest things in your life are trials, where your faith is demonstrated, your faith is tested. And that's what we've been looking at over the last few weeks. And we've seen how in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, that James tells his readers and tells you that when you go through trials, you need to consider it a joy. That's counter to to what we're naturally bent to do. And it's not not based on circumstances, because who wants to be in a trial? Who wants to be in a hard time? And that joy is something that comes from the Holy Spirit's produced, but it's also something we strive for. We think about, we purpose ourselves, we train ourselves to have the joy, to think of trials as joy. But he says we, we do this knowing that the testing, that that's what trials are, they're testing, they're testing us. But knowing that that testing, verse 3, produces endurance, steadfastness. There's a purpose behind the trial, and it's to produce steadfastness in your life, to make you stronger. And over time, James says, that steadfastness, that endurance, it will have its perfect result, which is your maturity. Perfect there is mature, so that you will be a mature Christian. God's testing to see if your faith is real. He's testing you. He's trying you. Right? If... if he has to use the Arab proverb, you know, all sunshine makes a desert. If life is always good times, then will we really have to trust Him and demonstrate our faith? And then James continues and he says, look, I know that trials are hard. And I know that it's going to be a tough time. And he says in verses basically 5 through 8, that if you need help, and you do, then you need to pray and ask God for wisdom. To help you understand what he's doing in this trial, your, your purpose in this trial, ways you can glorify God in the trial, the ways that you can have joy. Because apart from God's wisdom, right, applying God's word, we're, we're left to the world's wisdom, which is counter to what God says. And James says, look, ask for it. And he says again, ask for it in faith, knowing that God will answer your prayers. He will hear you. And then he gives an example. When he, and in the example that he gives, he basically says, I know that wealth is the, is the biggest issue that so many of you face. And so he gives an example when he pulls out the rich man and the poor man, he, and he talks about the way that they are to respond to their particular trials. Rich, being rich, having a lot of wealth is a trial, just as being poor is a trial. 
and how they are to respond as Christians in the midst of their individual trials that both have to do with the same thing, and that's money and wealth, position. And he says that the rich man should, should glory in the fact that everything he has is nothing compared to the glories of Christ. Where the poor man should glory in the fact that he has an exalted position that cannot change no matter what his state is, circumstantially. No matter how poor he is. And that brings us to what we're going to talk about today. And so what we're going to look at today, and as we, as we go in through this section, we're going to be, and I've titled this section, Passing the Test. And so one thing, I, as I looked, and as I was talking to one of my buddies recently, he's a, he's a nurse, or as I like to call him, a nurse, a male nurse. He's a nurse in the United States, and we were chatting, and, and it came up just, um, came up how hard the test is, the, the test to be a nurse. Nia can tell you a little bit about how hard it is to take the test to be a, a doctor, but he was telling me just how rough it was, how, how much time he spent studying and, and, and just all the effort that went into it. And so I decided to look it up. I was like, well, you know, it sounds like a big test. Let's, let's find out a little bit about it. And I was curious, and apparently the leading cause of failure among prospective nurses is in two things, their attitude and their approach to the test. You see, they become fearful, and they don't trust what they know, what they've learned in school. And then the other thing that they do is they, they don't understand that the test is not about knowledge, but it's about practical application of what they've learned. And so they approach the test two different ways, wrong attitude and wrong approach, in the sense that they're, they're thinking it's going to be knowledge-based. Well, from the Christian perspective, we do the same thing. We go through tests in life, and, and, and one, we, we either we don't fully understand what's going on, and we think what we have learned is sufficient, and we don't ask God for help, and we have a terrible attitude in it, or we don't understand that it's not about the knowledge itself, it's about taking the principles, the, the truth of God's Word, and applying it to our lives in every situation. And just like James says in verse 3, he says that, that trials come for us or to us by God to test us, right? And so as trials come, James doesn't want you to be immobilized by fear and run to the store and grab toilet paper. Sorry. The trials that come in your life, he wants you to seek after God. That's, he wants you to, to exercise the faith that you say you have. He wants you to seek God's wisdom from the Scriptures and pray that the Holy Spirit will help guide you to understand these trials. But there's a danger in trials. And this is what we're going to get into today. Because there's a danger. And James knows it. And he's trying to warn you and help you because he wants you to pass the test with an increased and strengthened faith. And he wants you to pass it with a good attitude. And as we're going to look at today in verses 12 through 15, we're going to talk about three helps or three ways that James is going to help you in your trials. And he says in verse 12, there's a reward for faithfulness. He says in verse 13 through 14, that the blame for failure rests solely on yourselves. And in verse 15, he says, there's a sin leads to death. So let's go ahead and look at the text. And what we're going to do, we're going to read verses 2 through 15, even though specifically today we're going to look at 12 through 15, because as you know, this is one section, one section that James is dealing with trials, and I want you to, to, to gather the complete thoughts. So we're going to read through it. Verse 2. 
Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, being driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man and stable in all his ways. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like the flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and the flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Verse 12, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved... He will receive the crown of life to which the Lord has promised to those who love Him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. And He Himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So the first thing we're going to look at this morning is there is a reward for faithfulness, right? That's a, James has given a motivation for you to, to endure, remain steadfast in hard circumstances. And he says, look, first of all, he says, blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. That blessing in its basic sense is being in a right relationship with God. The ancient Greeks used to ascribe as a characteristic of their pagan gods, used to say they were makarios, or they were blessed. That was a, that was a characteristic of a, of a god. And so the implication is for us, and James using this term, is that if we're blessed, and then we are like God in the sense that we have become His children. We've been indwelt with the Holy Spirit. We have been blessed to be in union with Jesus Christ. So ultimately, that's the, that's the central blessing. We're in right relationship with Him. That blessed state is not dependent upon your circumstances. You could be going through great, enjoyable times. You could be really low times. It doesn't matter. You are blessed because you are God's child. If you're in faith in Jesus or in relationship with Jesus Christ. But one thing that James says, he says, look, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. This is not a participation medal. In the United States, we have these field days where the kids go out and they, they compete in, you know, different, you know, the sack race and the running and the jumping and the, and the all sorts of tug of war. And, they, you know, the winners, they get ribbons or they get medals. One of the trends in the United States is instead of rewarding the kids who do, do well, is they reward everybody, and everybody gets a, a participation trophy or a participation ri a ribbon. Well, this isn't a participation ribbon that you get, because he says it's not that you just go through trials and you automatically are blessed and you're going to receive the crown of life. He said, blessed is the man who perseveres, because for many of you, you'll go through trials, and many Christians go through trials. And we go through these trials and it's not that our faith is shattered to the point where we, we walk away from God. Because if we do that, we prove ourselves to be an unbeliever. 
But it's our faith remains relatively strong, but we have the worst attitude. So our attitude is what's shattered. We're not approaching the trial with joy. We're grumbling and we're complaining against God. We're demanding that He do something. So we go through these trials and, and the trial ends and we didn't pass the test. We didn't endure. We may have gone through the trial. It is, we don't get a participation trophy. Right? There's no ribbon. It says, I went through this trial. The goal for God is that you'd pass the test. So you're going to go through difficulties. But James says, look, there's a reward. And as he's testing you, and as, he's, as God's working in your life, and he's bringing these trials, he's trying to prove that you are genuine. Verse 12 said, For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life. The word there, approved, is, is dekamos. For those of you who like Greek words, like Jordan, the person is the person who endures over time. It's the person who is tested. Right? A tested person is an approved person. A dakamos. Right? Has to do with showing the genuineness of something. It was interesting as I thought about genuineness, I couldn't help but think about sterling. The British used sterling, the sterling pound, and the word sterling of sterling silver. And I started thinking about, you know, they use that word, you describe, oh, that's, that person is sterling. He is of sterling character. It's entered our lexicon. Well, the word sterling means literally that it's, it's a set pure percentage. It's 92.5% silver and 7.5% some other alloy, usually copper. Right? And what well, was interesting is the legal definition for sterling appeared in 1275. It's a, it's, a, it's a ratio, a standard of purity. So when, when silver and gold, is, especially silver in this case, is going through the process of, of refinement, to be sterling, it has to be of a certain purity level. It has to be approved, right, to be sterling. So this is the end of the process, the, the process where God is working in your life. Remember, the, the trials are to test you. Increase your endurance to produce maturity, but He's testing you. He's refining you like gold. First Peter says this. The end of that process is that you would be approved. You would be dokumas. And one of the problems they had in the first century is they would coin, they would have coinage that would be gold or silver coins. And what would happen is two things. One, people would counterfeit them, and they would take copper coins, and they would just lay a little overlay of silver to, te- to try to make a counterfeit. Or they would take the gold, the, the gold or silver coins, and they would shave off a little bit, right? So they'd reduce the weight. So is it worth the same amount if you're shaving off? No. Well, what they would do, and they, they started doing this in Athens, is they, they created a position called a doikamaste, right? An approver use that term. And there'll be something in a market, or assume you have someone in a market, and you would take your coins to. And what he would do, he would weigh it, because if the coins were mostly copper, copper is lighter than silver, and so you could weigh it and you could see. And then he would also weigh it to see if it's pure, and he would test it. And to see if it was like a, like a, just a silver overlay, he would chisel a little bit, he'd take his, take his chisel, and he'd see what was underneath. But one thing that he would do is that he would mark on those coins a little mark, his little mark, and on those coins, they would have a little mark, and they found these marks on these coins. And basically, he would say, this coin is approved. It is what it says it is, or it is what this person claims it to be. That's what God is doing in your life. Right? He's working in your life. 
He wants to see if what you claim, that is, you claim to be a Christian, He wants to see if that's true. What you claim to know Him, well, let's put you through the refiner's fire and let's see if your faith stands the test of time. And so he says, look, for us, it's not, it's not a mark that we receive, but we receive a crown. Look down in verse 12. He said, for the one who's been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now, the crown was commonly giving, given excuse me, to victors of the Olympic-type games. One of the most famous ones was the Isthmus game near Corinth. And as the athletes would run the race and they would finish, they would be giving a wreath. Now, it wasn't a literal gold crown. It was, a, it was just a, 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 a woven wreath of flowers or branches. And it was designed to just show the victor of the race, the winner of the race. You think about these athletes have to discipline themselves. They show themselves what? They show themselves that they've worked hard. They've endured this long race. It's a symbol of of victory for us as Christians over sin and Satan and death. So James uses this term, a crown. But it's not just a crown, it's a crown consisting of life. Right? It's the, he's talking about the ultimate reward that you will have as a believer. He's talking about eternal life. You persevere under trials, you show yourself to be reproved, and you get to what? You get God. I think that's the thing we often think about. We say, well, I'm going to get eternal life. And we're thinking about eternal life, and we think about it from the perspective that we have now. But life eternally will be very, uh, very much different than what we live out now. For the, for the most important thing is that we will be able to see God face to face. So the greatest part of that reward of life, eternal life, forever in God's presence, is that we get God. Right? Do you realize, you think about the, the Israelites and, the, and the, great, um, the great Levitical prescriptions that God gave for the tabernacle. And how he had to separate himself from his people because lest he kill them with his holiness. God is our reward. The eternal life that we have forever in his presence. Right? What a great reward. I love Revelation 2.10. Do not fear about what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast you, some of you into prison. So that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. And then also in Revelation chapter 21. So it's another promise of the crown of life. Revelation 21, 1 through 5. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth have passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and no longer will be any death and there will be no longer be any mourning or crying or pain for the first things have passed away. You see, the crown of life is it's eternal life. We pass the test. We show ourselves approved. And there's a reward of God's presence. We haven't fallen away. 
And so there, there's a reward. The reward is God Himself. You know, one of the things I love, you know, my kids are young, and I come home from a busy day, out and about, um, studying, meeting with people, and I come home, and, and, I, and I come and open the door, and my kids run up, and they go, they go, Dada, Daddy, you're home. And they run and give me a big hug. You know, my presence is enough to make them happy, right? When we stand before Lord Jesus Christ, in the eternal state, our glorified body, standing in His presence, and we will be able to say, Abba. And His presence alone will bring us such joy. That is a motivation for enduring trials. James says, says he's, he's promised. He's promised that. And, and what he's talking about here is all the promises that God has made to us as saints. And he says, I love it. he says, it's those who love him. And it's not really in the, in the Greek, it's those who are loving him, who continually love him and will continue to love him. It's a motivating factor for us enduring trials. You know, James said, says that believers who remain steadfast in trials, they, they prove the genuineness of their faith. Those that remain steadfast and faithful are proved by God. And James says that believers are, are blessed in that they are His children. And they are blessed because of the special favor that He gives to them. You see, we have a new spiritual life on this earth. But we have a great eternal life promised to us for all eternity. Love what 1 Peter says in chapter 1, verse 8. He says, And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Right? You're talking about believers, even in 1 Peter, that are suffering. So James says, look, there's a reward, but there's also a danger in trials. And the second point that he makes is, Look, when you fail, don't blame God. Don't blame God. The blame solely rests upon yourself. Right? So look down at verse 13. He says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. So when he talks about temptation, when you think about temptation, the word is parasmos. Right? For every trial, there's an equal temptation. Like the flip side of coins. I was talking to my mom the other day. In America, we don't use coins for, for $1 and $2. It's bills. We use paper. Right? We were looking at a book, and I said, Mom, look at this book. In this book, it had a picture of an animal on top of all these coins, these, these gold coins. And I said, Aussies would look at that, and they would immediately get that. And I said, but you don't, you don't really think about it that way. It's a bunch of gold coins or gold dollar donations or gold coin donations. We don't think of those terms. All right? But there's two sides to every coin. When you think about trials, the other side, the flip side of that is temptation. Because James, though, in every trial, there is a temptation for you to give in to those natural desires that you have. When you're being tested and you're questioning God and you're doubting God and your faith and you're struggling, that's, there's a temptation there. It's when you're at your weakest because ultimately, that's what temptation is. Temptation is, is inward, but it's, it's external items, external things that, that tempt us inwardly to doubt God. 
doubt God's goodness, doubt His character. But James says, look, when you fail, he says, don't blame God. Because to temptation, the temptation, the word temp means to entice to improper behavior. God never tempts you to do evil. God never wants you to fail. Satan does. Satan wants you to fail. God doesn't. He wants you to succeed. And he he wants you to be approved as you go through that trial. So it's, it's an inner solicitation. It, it, the evil is aroused by an external trial. The, the external trial is the pressure, the, the inward solicitation to do evil. Right? We're, even though we're saved, we've been born again, we still struggle with the sinful flesh. Right? The indwelling sin, as John Owen calls it. We still struggle with that. Our desires. I don't have to tell you guys that. You know your own desires. Right? And so what, what James says is, no one say, and he actually does a quotation here, I am being tempted by God. Let no one ever say that. The word's an imperative. He said, not even one person should ever say that God is tempting me. God is not your excuse when you fail. You can say, oh, well, God's sovereign in trials. God doesn't want you to fail. James says, not even one person Right? You think how easy it is for us. So many people, including ourselves, we might not even realize what we're saying, but we, we do try to blame God. If only I, in this trial I had more money. Well, who gives, who gives money? Who gives wealth? God does. If only I had this, it would make me happy. Well, God has given us all things out of His goodness, of His heart. We want something more. It's, a, it's a discontented. Right? Nature in our hearts. We want more. And James says, like, stop blaming God. I had a friend of mine that he worked at a prison. And his prison was not too far north of a uh, previous church I was at. Got to know one of the guards. And, and he told me, he said his first day there, he had one of the older guards kind of pull him aside and said, Hey man, just want you to know, everyone in here is innocent. Don't listen to any sob stories. And he kind of was like, what? And he told me, he said, I was like, huh, what is he talking about? And he realized after a couple of weeks that everyone in prison is innocent. They all say they're innocent. You know, it was that bad judge. It was my terrible lawyer. You know, it was my friends. They never accept any kind of personal responsibility. So the, the joke among the guards is everybody's innocent, right? Because they all say they are. Right? You think about Genesis 3.12. It started at the beginning. You know, we often think about it this, and we haven't thought of this whole thing completely through but uh, when God confronts Adam and Eve, Adam says, the woman you gave me, she gave me from the tree and I ate it. We often say, well, Adam's blaming Eve. And he does, right? But ultimately, what, what, did, I, what did Adam really say? The woman you gave me. Oh, oh God, if you hadn't given me this woman, I would never have fallen, right? So who is, he, who is he blaming really? He's blaming God, right? It started at the beginning. We do it, we do it now. So James says, look, don't blame God when you fail. Right? The, the real person to, to blame is not God when we fall into sin and temptation. Right? It's, not about, it's not about God, it's about ourselves. Right? God is sovereign, yes, over your trials. And He's doing it to test you and refine you. But when, you, when you're in those trials and times gets hard, if you don't turn towards God... 
then you will fall into temptation. And you can't blame God because it's the decision that you made. And James is going to elaborate a little bit more of this later. So James says, look, I'm going to give you reasons to reject this statement. He said, God cannot be tempted by evil. God's, God's not consistent with His character and His nature. He said, God is incapable. The word there is, is untemptable, literally in the Greek. God is untemptable. He's not susceptible to evil. He's not man. For God, evil is an abomination. You think about the pagan gods, those Greek gods, for those of you that read the stories, you know, all those Achilles, Hercules, those ancient stories. And think about those pagan gods. You know, they're, they're terrible. They're unjust. I just wrote down some words as I was thinking about them. They're unjust and capricious. They love revenge. They, they care little for justice. They're immoral. They're prideful. They're spiteful. But what do they look like? They look like their creators. They look just like the men or mankind that created them. Mankind doesn't come up with a holy God that punishes and judges sin. I just thought of a few passages. Psalm 34 says, Taste and see that God is good. Psalm eleven seven. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold His face. 1 John 4, 8. The one who does not love God does not know God, for God is love. Malachi 3, 6, I, the Lord, do not change. 1 Corinthians 1, 9, God is faithful. Right? That's the God we serve. Don't blame God when you fall into sin. It's not His fault. Because God does not tempt you. He does not orchestrate circumstances to cause you to fall and fail. He wants you to come through the trial being fully tested and being approved. But James also says he doesn't tempt anyone. Not only is it inconsistent to say that God would tempt, or God is, God is any sorts of evil in Himself, he says He doesn't tempt anyone in verse 13 at the end. God doesn't want to cause people to fall. It's the, the seducer is the devil, as James actually says later in chapter 4, verse 7. God gives His people strength. You know, one of the things we often read in, is 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And we talked about a little bit about this a few weeks ago. But 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, this is what God does. No temptation, prosmos, has overtaken you such as common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, He will provide the way of escape also so that you may be able to endure it. And remember we talked about the way of escape? The way of escape means that it's a way of completion. That God has promised an end to the trial. That's how we can endure trials because we know they're not forever. That's our way of escape. Our way of escape as we endure is to trust God knowing that He's not going to allow us to be tempted to the point where we will break if we will trust Him. You know, as I was thinking about this, my, my son loves treats, as many of you know. He loves treats. And it'd be like this. Think of a way to illustrate this. It'd be like if I had a bunch of chocolates and cookies, biscuits, and I put them on my kitchen table. And my son's sitting on the couch and he's reading a book. And I say, all right, Arden, don't touch any of those treats. Dad is going to go in my room for a couple hours and study. Now, don't touch any of those treats. 
Now, my son, may, he may make it 10 minutes. He may make it 30 minutes. But what's going to happen? He is going to fall, right? A different, a different example. Take my son, and this has happened. Take my son into a lolly shop, right? Kids in a candy store. Take him into a lolly shop. And now before we go in, I say, Arden, I want you to, you're going to stay right with me. And you're not allowed to put your hands on any of these treats, right? And I'm going to buy you something. There's going to be a reward, right? We go in, but you're just not allowed to touch everything. And we go in, and I'm with him the whole time. And he knows there's a reward, there's an incentive. And guess what? He does well, right? He is not tempted beyond what he is able to bear, right? That's the way God works in our lives. He's not, he has your best interest at heart, Right? He's going to test you and try you. And he knows that even though that temptation may be hard in the midst of that trial, he's there with you and he wants you to trust him. So James says, don't blame God. He says the blame is, is really, it's on yourself. Look at verse 14. But each one is tempted when he is carried away enticed by his own lust. And I love that each one or, or everyone is tempted. He's talking about a universal situation. We all can relate to this, whether it's the readers 2,000 years ago or us. Every one of us, is, every one of them reading this is tempted. No one is exempt. Even as we mature, and you talk to mature Christians who have walked with the Lord for many, many, many years, even decades upon decades, and they'll tell you, look, I still am being tempted. Now, they might be tempted as much in certain areas and in the same frequency, but temptation is still there. And James says, look, there, you know, the temptation there is, is you're enticed to improper behavior. Ultimately, it's you're enticed to satisfaction apart from God and what He's given you. It's a seed of unbelief. That's temptation. Right? Doubt, unbelief in the midst of trials. If you think about Achilles, I've got a lot of Greek examples. I didn't realize there's this many. I guess I was on my mind. But think about Achilles in the, in the story of the Trojan War. Right? Achilles was invulnerable, except for one thing, his heel. That's where we get Achilles' heels from. But it's because his mother dipped him in the river Styx as an infant. Right? And she held onto his, his ankle, held onto his heel. Right? And he was invulnerable. And that's how, oh, me, how he died. It's an arrow hit his heel. Now, we all face different types of trials. We're not in, invulnerable to those trials, but they are varied. We all have our different Achilles heels, and we have to be careful. We're talking to, to a brother, brother, and sister, and they're, they're saying, oh, I'm being tempted, and, and oh, I'm, I'm really struggling with this temptation, and I'm struggling in this trial and this issue, and you go, ha, huh, I wouldn't be tempted in that. But then again, you start confessing some of the things you're being tempted by, and they just kind of look at you and go, why are you being tempted by that? They're varied. We all have temptations, and they vary. We all have our Achilles heel. Everyone faces temptation. And then James says, look, just so you understand, he said, you need to understand you're tempted, and you're, 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 you're tempted by your own self. You're tempted by and enticed, carried away by your own lusts. It's your own desires. A desire is a, it's a, the Greek it means a concentrated desire, epithume. It was translated desires, translated lust in different versions of the Bible. It's an intense longing that hinders our walk with God. It's a, a strong desire for something to satisfy us. Now we have natural desires. Why? Right? We have a desire for companionship. 
Right? God provides that companionship through fellowship in the body and friends and, and through marriage. And if we, we look for companionship outside of God's will, then it becomes what? A sinful desire. Same thing, just a food, for example. Right? God provides food. There's nothing wrong to desire food. But when you want to desire and eat that whole cake versus one slice, it becomes a, a what gluttony becomes a sinful desire. You know, one of the things that Satan wants us to believe, and this goes back to Genesis 3, is Satan wants you to believe that God is bad. His restrictions are bad. And he wants you to think that, what, sin is better. That sin is something better for you than what God has given you. That's what Paul talks about. I've learned to be content in every circumstance, whether I have little or I have much. Philippians, Paul says, I've learned to be content. It's, it's a learning process. That's, a, that's that endurance and that steadfastness in trials. But notice what James uses. Josh and I were just talking about how he went fishing yesterday. So Josh ought to especially love this. James uses fishing terms here. He says that you're, you're enticed and you're, you're dragged away. Dragged away literally means to be, to be, to be pulled away like a fisherman with a, with a fishing rod. It's that hook that's hidden in that worm, that cricket, or whatever else you're using. Right? It, it's our desires desire to pull us in and pull us away from God. And, and the word enticed literally means to bait. James is using some fishing terms here. So our thoughts, as, a, as we allow our thoughts and our desires to grow within ourselves, we, we see only the attractiveness of that object. We don't see the consequences Right? You ask the adulterer who's, who's lost his marriage and his family, and you say, did you think about that? No, only thought about the momentary seduct- seductiveness of sin. So these inner cravings, these desires, we either have to, act, we have to act upon them. Excuse me. We either have to repulse them and hold those thoughts captive and resist those desires, or we will give in to them. There's only two choices in the mind. One of my mentors and this is just background, let me give you a second. My mentors would always use a, a term, but in the States, when you, if you have like, a, like teenagers and they're sitting at a table and they're, they're playing with each other's feet, you know, those things, they call it playing footsie in the States. So making sure that you understand that term, we call it playing footsie. Well, my, my mentors used to say that, you know what, when you play footsie with sin, you're always, you're always going to fall into it, right? You're, you're in your mind, you're playing footsie with it. You're already going down that path where you want it, and it's becoming a sinful desire. Remember catfishing. I love catfishing in eastern North Carolina. And we'd go out with my buddies and we'd bait the hook with some livers and we'd throw it in and we'd try to catch those catfish, catch them and clean them and eat them and they were delicious. Well, what are we doing? We're, we're trying to entice those catfish to, to grab that bait and then we're going to what? We're going to drag them away out of their natural state. That's what your desires are longing to do. Your, your desires in your own heart, they, they long to drag you away from your walk with the Lord. So in the midst of trials, there's temptation. And it always begins in the heart. That's why James says, don't blame anybody else. It starts with you. Your inward desires, if you give in to them, they become the bait that leads you in the sin. Now the third point, James says, sin leads to death. And this is where he gives us a picture of how sin works. If you've ever wondered, this is James saying, let me explain it to you. In case you're a little bit confused about this whole temptation and desire. James says in verse 15, he says, 
Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So desire conceived, it's a desire conceived is an active desire. Like I said, we're looking for something to satisfy outside of God. And when it's conceived, we welcome that desire in the heart. We've indulged that lust in the mind. The object itself is not necessarily sinful, but it's our desire for that object. When we concentrate on that desire and we want it more than we want anything else and it becomes an idol in our life, it becomes a sinful desire. You maybe work with somebody at work. You know, you've been working with them for years. They've never, be, they've never become an object of temptation until you're struggling in your marriage. And then they become, well, you know what? They seem to have it all together. I wonder what it's like, would be like to, to have, be in a relationship with them. The person themselves is, not, is neither good nor bad. The object itself, right? But it's our desires that when we, when we think about it, it's like a malignant cancer. For those of you that experience cancer or know somebody that has, you cut it out immediately. You, you hold that thought captive. You, you confess that sinful thought. You repent and you stop it right there. Otherwise, what does that cancer do? It grows and it grows and it grows in your mind. It's like, a dog playing with a bone. Right? He'll chew on that bone and chew on that bone. How do, you get him, how do you get that bone from him? He's not going to willingly give it up. Well, if you throw a stake on the ground right beside it, what is he going to do? He's going to let go of that bone and go for the stake. He's going to go for what's better. That's what you have to do in your mind. That temptation is like that bone. You start gnawing on it and you start thinking about it. And you start indulging those sinful desires. What do you need to do? You need to go, no, I'm going to hold that thought captive. And I want to obey Christ and love Christ and follow Christ because the rewards for me are so much better than this stupid old bone, the sin. And I want to honor the Lord knowing that what He's provided for me is so much better. Colossians 3, 1-4, Paul says the same thing. He said, if you're a believer, you set your mind, those of you who remember Colossians, you set your mind on the things above, and you set your affections, your desires on the things above rather than the things on this earth. That's what Paul's talking about. Same principle. But James says, look, when that sin, that desire turns into a sinful desire, it leads to what? It's like a harlot. It gives birth to sin. A sinful a desire acted upon. A desire mulled over in your mind, right? And you're, you start thinking about how you can, you can indulge in that sinful desire. What are you going to do when the opportunity presents itself? You're going to indulge in the sinful desire and you're going to do it. And that's what James says. He says it, it gives birth to sin. Desire is welcomed in us. Our will surrenders to the desire, we grasp it in our minds, we think about it, and then we want to act it out. That's what James is saying, right? It, to put it another way, it's, it's impregnated lust. The lust in our minds gives birth to sin. James is, just for those of you ladies that have given birth, he's, he's given a picture of the step-by-step process. Right? We've got, we got to be careful that we don't make provision for the flesh, that we don't want to indulge in the flesh. Romans 13, 14. Like, don't look for sobriety at a bar. Simple, right? Right? You, you don't look for to maintain your virtue at a porn shop. If you're thinking about simplicity, you don't go to the mall and look at all the stuff in all the windows. 
Because once sin is born, it must be terminated by repentance. So that sinful, if you don't catch it in the sinful desires, and you don't stop it there, hold it captive, and, and repent of it and confess it then, it, then it gives birth to a sinful action. Then you have another opportunity to confess and repent. James says, look at what happens. He said, it will grow and grow in your life until what? It brings forth death. What is death? Death is, is separation. Right? There's different types of death. There's, there's physical death. There's spiritual death. There's eternal death. Now, eternal destiny is secured. But Scripture does say that as a believer, if you persist in sin, you persist in willful rebellion over time, that there is a sin that leads to death. 1 John 5.16 That God, if you persist in unrepentance, God will say, alright, that's enough. And God knows what that is. And He will bring you home. He said, enough is enough. He's brought enough dishonor to my name. Sin is like those Burmese pythons that are uh, just invading and permeating my wife's home state of Florida. They're not from Florida. Florida's a swamp. They just pumped it out and built houses. But people buy these pythons and they're, you know, they're, they're you know, a little over a foot long. You know, foot's 12 inches. It's about a foot. Furial. You know, when people get them, all oh, they're little snakes. Oh, they're wonderful. In a few years, you know, they can be six foot long. A few more years after that, they can be 15 foot long. That's like sin growing in your life. It grows and grows and grows and becomes a habit. And as it produces just destruction in your life, separation from the life of God, you lack any kind of joy, and it produces death. That death is a, it's a, it's a separation, a loss of joy. You've quenched the this Holy Spirit. You've lost your fellowship with God. It, it doesn't bring you pleasure because you've made your pleasure your sin. Peter warns in 2 Peter, he says, it can lead to you being useless and unfruitful. What a terrible thing is you stand before the Lord and instead of Him saying, well done, my faithful servant, He says you were useless and unfruitful because you persisted in your sin. And ultimately, if you continue in your sin, does it, it really demonstrates, do you have faith at all? Right? Because remember, James goes back, if you have faith, you obey. You have faith, you love the Lord. You have faith, you demonstrate that. And if you persist in willful sin, then there's, there's no way that anyone can tell you if you're really a believer anyway. You know, Paul Harvey, an American radio broadcaster, told about Eskimos in the North Tundra and how they kill wolves. They take a sharp knife and they coat it with a layer of, of animal blood and they let it freeze and they, and they coat it again and let it freeze. And they, they basically build up blood on this knife, frozen blood, so it covers the knife. You can't tell it's a knife. And then they anchor it to the ground in the snow at night, and then the wolves come. And when the wolves come, they come and they start licking the knife. And they get, they get, uh, they get driven insane, basically to a, a frenzy by the, their bloodlust. And they keep licking it and licking it and licking it, until finally they get to the point where they're actually licking the knife itself, and they're cutting themselves. And the blood that they taste is now their own, but they're, they're, they're such drawn in by that, that concentrated desire for blood that they don't notice that they're killing themselves. And in the morning, Eskimo goes out, and there's the wolf. And he's bled himself to death. 
You see, trials in our life, trials, the flip side is temptation, then our desires, the danger is our desires, we want things other than God has provided, and those desires turn into sinful desires, and those sinful desires turn into sinful actions, and over time those sinful actions become habitual in our life, and habitual actions lead to what? Spiritual death, and even physical death. Brethren, James is is finishing this opening section on trials with a volley aimed at your life. Remember that He desires and God desires that your profession of faith equal your lifestyle. He's pointed out that God tests your faith by bringing trials and testing in your life. And He says in this passage that He wants believers, He wants you to pass the test. The reward for passing a test is you get God for all eternity. He also tells us that in every trial there's a temptation. Desire for sin that comes from within. And if we fail to consider trials joy, and we, we fail to seek God's wisdom, we make ourselves acceptable to doubting the goodness and love of God. We become dissatisfied with what we have, and we begin to think about ways to satisfy ourselves outside of God and His will. George Wilfel said, all trials are for two ends. We may be better acquainted with the Lord Jesus and better acquainted with our own hearts. In Greek, the one who stands the test, as you remember, is dokamos. It's the word for approved. Well, it was also used of stones as they were being fitted to build a building. And if a stone had a flaw on it, it was marked with the letter A. Letting everybody know, all the builders know that this was a dakamastos. That we, it was meaning that it was been tested and found wanting. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2 that we come to God as living stones. We are being built up as a spiritual house. He's trying us. He's testing us. He's removing the bits in our life that are unacceptable as He refines us, as He works in us to produce Christ-like maturity, as He's building us to a spiritual building. Brethren, my, my prayer for you that, is that you would be approved. That you would not be the marked with a capital A for a dokamos. James says in verse 4, or sorry, chapter 4, verse 7, 8, he says, he says, Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee for you. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. That's the goal. What God wants from us in our trials, that we would draw near to Him and our faith would be approved. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we thank You for Your Word. For what a challenge it is as we, we hear about the root cause of sin as our own desires and we see how it can lead to uh, sinful desires and, and then sinful actions and, and dominate us and lead to habitual sin in our lives. Father, help us to, to grasp hold of that sin, to hold those thoughts captive at the beginning. Confess that they're unacceptable to You. Ask Your forgiveness to stop the chain. Lord, I pray that we would be all pre-approved as we go through trials in our lives. Help us to trust You. I pray that our faith would be strengthened. Our desire for sin would be lessened. And our appreciation for You 
and your nature and your glory, your works would grow evermore. Lord, we long for the day that we will be in your presence and what a reward it will be. We praise you and honor you, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.